looking at it from a lens of my role, from being a young SDR all the way up, it's doing the 20% of the things that you don't want to do. I always say like, if you can get in a job where you love 80% of it, you are damn lucky. There's always 20% that you're not going to like, you do it anyway. It's your job. So it's doing that 20%, even when you don't want to do it. That's why it's called grit. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, Jubin. I start every one of these off. The audience is tired of hearing me say this with the same exact thing, which is my guest background. The guest backgrounds are never the exact same, but what is consistent is Jubin screwing up most of them. So let me read it back to you. You tell me what I do or don't get correct, and then we'll go from there. Deal? Yeah, deal. You went to UC Santa Barbara to get your bachelor's in comms. Then you went to SGI as an inside sales rep from 96 to 98. Inside sales rep is really just SDR, lead generation, cold calling, et cetera. And then you went to Evolve Software, where you were an AE for four years, from 98 to 2002. Then Serena Software as an AE from 02 to 05. HP as a strategic account manager from 05 to 2010. And then you went to Google. You spent about eight years in Google, first as a strategic account executive for Google Enterprise, did four years of that, head of sales for Google Cloud, three years of that head of sales, strategic verticals for Google Cloud, and you did that for about a year until 2018. Then you found a company called Unity Technologies, where you are now the vice president of sales for North America and EMEA. Been doing that for, gosh, I guess three and a half years. What did I screw up? Well, okay, maybe one thing and only because I'm really (laughs) proud of it. So at Evolve, I actually joined, yeah, as the first inside sales person. And then that was where I, I made my move to the field. And I only pointed out because it took a lot of guts to go in and ask for them to promote me. And so I just, I remember that moment sitting in the CEO's office and, and saying, I think you should promote me and him looking at me going, okay. And he did. So that was my first, uh, that was my first lesson. You have to ask for what you want and sometimes you'll get it. (laughs) What gave you the confidence to do that? Was it metrics? Was it just knowing you're ready? Was it watching other AEs stumble on the leads that, that you had set and knowing that you could do better? What was it? It was a startup, right? In San Francisco.com. Yeah. And what turned out is I was driving so many leads and qualifying them that the field reps that we had couldn't keep up. So there was an opportunity with a company at the time called Portal Software. And I went into the field reps office and I was like, listen, Peter, you're super busy. Could I just like go to this meeting and try and see if I can do this. And he's like, absolutely go. So I drove down and I had my meeting and I came back to Peter's office and I said, he said, how'd it go? I said, it went well. I think they want to buy it. He goes, okay, go back. I want you to go ask them these four questions. I'm like, okay. So I I went back and I asked those four questions. I came back and I said, here are the answers. I think they want to buy this. And I did that a couple more rounds and it turns out they did. And I closed a half a million dollar deal kind of knowing what I was doing and kind of not knowing what I was doing. And um, I know we're on a podcast, so you can't see it, but I, behind me back there is a photo of the CEO. He was on the cover of 
Forbes for being one of the first billionaires in Silicon Valley. So my boss at the time had the CEO of Portal Software sign the front of that, framed it for me and brought it to me as a congratulations for closing that deal. No way. Yeah. So it's still there. And it reminds me of my first big technology deal that I ever closed. Did the CEO of the company that you were selling to, the one that I think signed, did he know that this was like your first sales campaign ever? He did after my boss called him and explained this to him. <laughs> and it says literally, congratulations on your first big tech deal. So that is unreal. It was really, really kind. And going back to your original question, that's what gave me the impetus to say like, okay, I think I can do this. The other thing I saw happening, and this happens a lot at these small companies was Evolve started to scale really quickly. And so my message to the CEO was, I want to come in and ask you this because I feel like I might get left behind. You're going and hiring all these field reps. And so I want to put my name in the hat to be one. And I had done the work and I needed to stand up for myself. And he gave me the job and I actually became rep of the year that year. So it was really Unreal. interesting to go from being that inside sales 20, maybe I was 28 years old at the time, to uh, the top field rep that year and an experience I will never forget. I love that story. I didn't expect to go down a rabbit hole this quickly, but we will. So one of my previous guests, Mar Brandt, is the uh, SVP of sales for Apps Flyer. And her and I talked about a book that Abby Wambach wrote, who's like the incredible women's soccer player, one of the best to ever live. And Abby used to share a story about being the wolf and demanding the ball. And in this, she talks about basically how as a woman growing up in male-dominated industries, sports, et cetera, and there's a lot of parallels to what she was doing and, and what I think you've had to do and what Mars done, is demanding the ball. And felt like you got an early lesson in demanding the ball at a younger age. You think that's stuck with you? <laughs> yeah, I do. I think it's an important lesson to learn. I mean, I was lucky in the case here where I demanded the ball, they passed the ball to me. I've had many experiences. And yeah, and I scored, yeah. But I have had many experiences where I've demanded the ball and not scored or not even been passed the ball. So I think the, the lesson is you just, you have to be, and I think as salespeople, we get pretty good at this, is you have to be okay with hearing no, but you can't let the fear of that no stop you from demanding the ball. In the times when you did demand the ball and the answer was no, do you think that you were premature in asking for it? It's a good question. Probably a couple of times, but more than not, no. I don't necessarily think so. I think what I've learned over the years, Jubin, is it's not always about you. So you might be demanding the ball, but there may be something else going on inside the organization that means there's a reason they can't pass you the ball, but you not, may not be aware of that. I'll try to give a more specific example. So as I hire leaders on my teams and even reps on my teams, there are times, for example, where you can take a risk on bringing in a new leader who's never led before because everything else in the business is going well. And so you're at this perfect point to bring in and take a risk on somebody to pass them the ball. There might be other times where the business is struggling or you just brought in another leader who doesn't have any experience and you know you've got to focus your effort on them. And so because of something else that's going on that has nothing to do with the person asking for the ball, you may have to say no. 
many of the times where I wasn't past the ball, oftentimes it had little to do with me. It was other things going on on the field. And maybe taking it a step further, the times when you were told no, did it negatively reinforce your impetus to go do it again? I.e., at the time when it happened, did you take it personally? I.e., I haven't done what I need to do and used it as fuel to go earn the opportunity to go get the ball passed to you? Or did you realize at that point that maybe in some of those cases there were just broader forces working against you? For sure the first. So it absolutely fuels me. I am stubborn. I am so stubborn. <laughs> but then there becomes a time that you have to stop and go, okay, should I really be playing the game? And when I started at Google back in the early days, this was early days of cloud. We were competing with Microsoft. And at this time I was a rep. And when I went into Google, I was a rep who had never missed her annual quota. And I loved having that record. And I walked into Google and we were competing with Microsoft selling Google apps. And it was hard. And we were early to the market, trying to figure out product market fit, trying to educate the market on what cloud was and why you could move off a technology that you had used for your entire career. So long story short, I didn't hit quota and it crushed me. But I was like, oh, I'm way too stubborn to stop now. No way is this gonna get me down. So I went out and I did it again next year and I missed again. And at this point, I'm like, oh my God. I remember I went and sat and had a conversation with my boss at the time. And I was like, are you going to fire me? And he was like, absolutely not. So what I learned there was it was a market condition at the time. So that fueled me to keep going. And then everything changed in the next year. Everything changed over. And I had great success and eventually moved into being a leader inside of Google and had a great run there. And finally had to make the decision, like, was I going to keep going? And we were getting to a point where we had brought Diane Green in to run cloud and it was clearly expanding. It was changing a lot too. It wasn't the Google that I had signed on for. It was still great, still an amazing company, but I had to make the decision if I was going to go and, and do something else. And part of me making that decision was around like, could I get promoted there and getting yep. promoted at Google? And I'm sure this is very similar to a lot of large companies. It is no small feat. It is really, really hard. And I had been up, you know, a couple of times from what I'm told, because it's also quite a secretive process and hadn't gotten it. And so at that point, I think that's when I had to choose. Was I going to keep letting that fire fuel me or was I going to need to make a different call? And that was a big deliberation. And I was up many, many nights thinking about what to do there and eventually decided that it was time to go and take all the things that they had taught me and go build my own team and go do something really different that would challenge me in different ways, so. What are you thinking about? Maybe I'll give an example. As I make big decisions in my life, oftentimes I'm my own worst enemy and I'm competing against this image of who I am, making sure that, hey, is it because I'm not resilient or is it because there's some small objection or what feels like a large objection that I'm not willing to like grind through? Am I gonna make an excuse for why I can't be here and there's so many other great jobs out there? Or is it actually the right time for me to leave? Have I actually reached my ceiling? And usually 
the tell is when I've stopped learning. Like that's what I've developed as my signal for when it's time rather than anything else. It's just like, have I stopped learning? If the answer is yes, then usually I leave. What was it for you? What did that deliberation process look like? I think there was a level of frustration at a certain point. It was great things were happening inside the business. We were growing, we were overachieving on our targets, but I just, I felt stuck. I think the other piece of it was those around me outside of work had given me feedback that you seem really frustrated. And I was like, man, if, if this frustration is carrying over into my personal mm -hmm. life, it's probably time to, to have a hard look at what's going on. And that was a, a big piece of it. I got to a point that I knew I had to make a move. The other process I went through was I knew I wanted to grow my career. I knew I wanted to be running, if not a sales organization, large organizations. And I knew I wanted to do that. I've got some pretty big career aspirations. And so I started looking around on LinkedIn and seeing people that I admired, like, what did they do? How did they get there? And I don't know about you, Juven, but I, I also, I hear these stories where people be like, yeah, and then I was, they just approached me and asked, hey, would you like to go run this organization? And I was like, huh, I hadn't thought about it, but sure. That never happened to me. <laughs> like, I'm like, who does this happen to? So I always felt like I had to go get what I wanted. So I looked around LinkedIn and what I realized is there were a few people at these large companies that were able to make it all the way to the top, but more than not, you needed to move around and it gives you great experience. And I'm so glad I did not to take anything away from my time at Google. It was amazing. And it's why I am where I am today. And the way I think is based on what I learned at Google, but I'm really glad I was able to, to take a risk and make a move. I feel pretty proud of that. That's a great story. Before I get into Unity, your first real job out of school was at SGI. And for the audience listening that doesn't know what SGI was, maybe I'm over-dramatizing this, but this was basically the Google before Google. Like this was this incredible hub for talent to the point where I was, as I was preparing for this and I knew what SGI was, especially because my first startup, a bunch of folks from SGI started the company. So like Tom Gillis, Bob Abbott, who was then at Norwest was an investor. Jason Lango was a co-founder. And then I started looking more into like, who else was in this SGI lineage? And the founders of Floodgate, NEA, Wing, Lightspeed, were all like product managers. They're like just random, not even leaders, just like product managers. Jim Clark, who went on to go start Netscape with Mark Andreessen, was the CEO of this company. Anyway, I don't think you or anybody else knew it at the time. What an incredible foundation you were going to have with the network of people that you were going to just know, even as a BDR in your first job. When you walked in there, did you know what you were getting into? Well, I knew it was something special because the buildings were so cool. And those <laughs> buildings are now Google. So my first day at Google, I drove back to the same building for my first job in technology. And that was crazy. I also knew I kind of hit it, I think, right after it's like really hitting the top because everybody yeah. the year before got watches or something. I can't remember what kind right. of fancy watch it was. And I was like, dang, I just missed it by a year. And I knew it from the people that I was surrounded with. So it was a bit of a, like your first job in tech, I was well-paid and I just couldn't believe it. I was covering the New York territory. And so I was commuting in from the city. So I'd get up at like four o'clock in the morning or some ungodly hour to get down to Silicon graphics and do my calls. 
So I did know it was special. And now being at Unity, we call on the media and entertainment verticals, which were some of the largest customers that SGI served at the time. So it is crazy how the world works. As I grow older, I've stopped believing in coincidences. I want to chat with you about like what does sales, future of sales, offices, et cetera, look like. I want to talk to you about like what leadership looks like, what's good leadership, what's the dark side of leadership, if that exists. I think it does. Before we do, let's talk about Unity really quick. It is a pretty grand slam IPO, putting it lightly. It was, I think, at the end of last year, it IPO'd, raised like a billion and a half dollars at 23 plus billion today. This might be wrong, but please correct me. It's doing over 700 million of ARR. I always like to use Snowflake as the reference point. Snowflake's doing 300 million of ARR. So doing pretty good for a gaming company. Could you please take 30-ish seconds to tell the audience what Unity does? Unity is a platform that enables the world's creators to create. So it's a company that was founded in Denmark 15 years ago by a couple of video game makers who are now famous in the industry. But they tried to make a game. It's called Goo Ball. And the game was awful, but the platform that they built the game on was really good. So they put it out there and thought, hey, well, maybe some people would like to use this. And it turns out that a lot of people wanted to use it. And that's what is now what we call the Unity Engine. So that's the core bread and butter technology. People are using this technology to develop anything in 3D, but also AR and VR. And you can develop it on our platform and then you can run it on any other platform. So if it's VR, you can run it in a HoloLens. If it's a game, you can run it on a console or a PC or mobile. 75% of the top 1,000 mobile games in the world are built on Unity. What the cool piece of it is for me coming from enterprise technology sales, I love it when you see a technology that's used for one thing and then other people come in and adopt it to do something slightly different. So we've got companies that are making self-driving cars that are leveraging Unity. And when you think about trying to train a self-driving car, it's kind of like a video game. So there are all kinds of applications for this technology. Games is but one of them, so we're just getting warmed up and it's a really fun, very creative space to be in. It reminds me early in the show, we had the CRO of Shopify and he was telling the story of the Shopify origins, whatever. And you know, it was basically started a snowboard store realized that tools sucked to develop a snowboard store online and that the tooling infrastructure was more compelling than the actual store itself. And then they built Shopify. The irony is that Toby, the CEO, he credits gaming with a lot of his inspiration for like the discipline, the focus, a lot of the way that he learned as a young kid is gaming. So anyway, a lot of parallels. So you said 71% of the top 100 mobile games? 1,000. 1,000, okay. It's cranking. This company is absolutely on a tear. I also have that 93 of the top 100 game development studios by Global Revenue in 2019 were Unity customers. So you have 71% of the top 1,000. You have 93 of the top 100 game development studios. It's also very, very attractive to the lower end of the market, like this whole independent creative set of people that want to go start an app, create a game. And games are not built on... Xbox and N64 like they used to be. There's other ways of introducing a game to the world. The net expansion on the trailing 12 months of revenue as of last year was 142%. So that's like 
what we see in a traditional SaaS business is like best in class. So you see all this stuff. And again, for the audience who might just be starting to listen to the show now, 142% means that on net expansion means that if the customer spends $1 million and customer success does its job, then they will naturally expand by 42%. And so that's a very beautiful business model. The other thing is that geographically in 2019, 34% of revenue came from EMEA, 28% came from the US, 5% from the Americas, excluding the US, 12% from China, and 21% from APAC. So at that time, your responsibility is about 70-ish percent of revenue. Is that right? I always joke, we are the most complex little company you've ever seen. So we've actually got, so it's not exactly right. No. This thing. We've got two sides to the business. So we've got a create side, which is the side of the business that I'm on. And then we've got an operate side. So you can create your game or whatever it is, your experience with our technology on our side of the business. And then you can run that game and monetize that game with our set of operate solutions. And that's run by my colleague, Julie Schumacher. And the monetization of the game, for the most part, ads, correct? Yes. Like you, can, you can help the developer put targeted ads for their core audience. We can. And we've got some technology that surrounds that, that helps especially game developers understand where to put the ad, when to put the ad, because it's a fine balance of where and when without disrupting the play of the game. So yeah. there's all of this optimization that's going on in the background that we bring to the table to help really specifically with ensuring that that people get the most when it's targeted around games. Please, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I was trying to unpack what the hell's going on at this company from the go-to-market side, on the one end, you're selling to this very, very long tail of developers, right, that are building games. On the other end of that barbell, you're selling to EA and the take-twos of the world. Then my thought was, in your purview is like the large enterprise teams that are selling to the EAs of the world. In your purview is the SMB and BDR teams, the inside sales teams, whatever that means anymore, that are selling to the long tail, right? And so as I thought, oh boy, like this is a very distributed go-to-market that has two very unique ends of the dumbbell. How do you like organize a go-to-market? So then my thought process was, well, it's probably a very traditional go-to-market. Like pre-COVID, it was you know, an inside sales team with a bullpen and a set of distributed reps that lived where the customer lived, that had a badge that they would go through the halls as much as they could to go earn those big dollars. Is that fair? Is that right? Very fair. Okay. So how many bodies are in your organization? How many salespeople? So in my organization, there's about 120 people. Two thirds of those people carry a bag. We've got sales engineering. I've got a phenomenal head of growth that helps me figure out where to go and continue to grow that net revenue expansion. I've got a gentleman who leads our training organization. So there are people beyond sellers on my team, but for the majority of the people, yes, we have the SDR teams, we have the inside sales teams, and we've got the field sales teams. So quite traditional model. We cover the long tail. We cover the strategic accounts. We also have an online or digital business, as we call it. We also have a free product. So it's actually quite a complicated go-to-market. And it's a really interesting challenge to figure out 
where do each of these groups spend their time and how do I optimize that model? So let me ask you this. And I kind of made a point of throughout this show, which started early, early COVID to like not talk about COVID and just talk about like people, their journey. I thought we were kind of tired of talking about COVID, but now we're like coming out the other end. And I am in my office recording this podcast for the first time in a year. It's a really good feeling. You earlier said that you would wake up at some godforsaken hour to get from San Francisco to SGI at like five in the morning, whatever that was, right? And like, we both kind of laugh about that now because it seems crazy. I used to commute from San Francisco to Sunnyvale and then Mountain View when I was a BDR. And I would take a bike from the Mission to the Caltrain I would get my bike on the Caltrain. I would hotspot on my phone because the Caltrain in the Bay Area doesn't have Wi-Fi. And then I would start prospecting on the train on the way down. All that was like three hours a day to go make cold calls so that I could go sit with like a bullpen of a few people. So how do you think about that moving forward? Like that feels kind of crazy to me now. So on the one hand, I'm like, you know what? That's not productive. On the other hand, if I'm fresh out of college, there's a lot to be said for the culture of being together. So really, really long-winded question. I'll let you take with it what you will. I think it's a puzzle that we haven't quite figured out yet. I am a mother of three children myself, and so they're not even fully back in school. So I think what's really challenging right now is trying to figure out what's the plan going to be without having all of the dependencies covered. In general, what I believe to be true is that especially salespeople, they get energy from other people. I agree that a commute is brutal. I've logged way too many hours in a car, but I also believe you learn through a little bit of osmosis and that turning to somebody who might know the answer to a question that you have, especially when you're new, is really powerful. So I think it's finding a balance I'm not trying to skirt the question at all. I just don't think my honest answer is I'm not sure I completely know what my response is. I can talk a little bit about the things that I I think about and what I've learned that I believe will guide me to making these final decisions as we approach the summer. A lot of it goes back to metrics, Jubin, and being able to really quantify what do we need to achieve in order to hit our goals. And if we can achieve those things and stay on track and hit the goals, then I think the pressure comes off to feel like we make the exact right decision, if that makes sense. If we're doing well, the decisions become a little easier, a little more flexible. But I always like to ask myself, what happens when you're not doing well? So will the decision that I make today, if six months down the line, suddenly my pipelines aren't full or I'm not hitting targets, will I look back and say, oh, I should have made a different call on going back to the office? That was my bad. So those are the way I like to approach decisions. And that's what I'll be thinking about as we kind of run down the clock on what is this crazy time. In some way, fashion or form, people will go back to the office. I'm confident of that. I think it's a question of how are we going to do it in a way that allows everybody to live a healthy life. Yeah, I think that's a really good framework. The thing that I think about, especially in sales, we're just going to look at the metrics, right? And especially in the Kleiner portfolio. In fact, most of the guest organizations that have been on the podcast started as very technical and engineering-centric cultures that over time transitioned into like robust go-to-market, 
organizations that serve the customer rather than built a product. And I've always said that the foundation for the changing of that tide is like an inside sales team. It's like a bunch of BDRs and a few inside sales reps that are making way too much noise, that are banging gongs, that are making cold calls, that all of a sudden reminds everyone, whether they like it or not, that we are transitioning this culture into one of delivering the product into the customer's hands, getting feedback, getting a check, whatever that is. And so I get nervous that the metrics stay good. People are really productive. We're going to use tools like Clarion Gong to make sure that we're monitoring all those metrics, but we're going to lose the unquantifiable things, the things that more rapidly change a culture into like a go-to-market oriented culture. Do you think about that? You know, I think back to my time at Evolve Software, where we, we've talked about this earlier, and one of my favorite things about it is in the early days when somebody closed a deal, everybody, I'm talking engineering, legal, sales, marketing, everybody went down the street to the drunken sailor bar on Battery, and we all had cocktails there. And that was the fun. In Unity, we have a fantastic basement at the bottom floor of our San Francisco office, and I see especially the SDRs and the inside salespeople. They have created the culture down there. Like that is their domain. We've got kegs and wine and after work, they all go down and hang out. So there's that piece of it, right? And that's where I think we keep ourselves motivated. Look, being an SDR, that's a hard job. There has to be yeah. some fun with it. And I don't know how to have fun over Zoom anymore. <laughs> like I'm trying, you're trying, but it's not fun. So I totally agree with you. I think there's the metrics and that that has to be front and center, but then there's the other piece of it. So when I look at retention, for example, same question. If my metrics are good, but I'm losing all my people and I didn't bring them back, what will I think about that decision? So yeah, there's lots of right. ways to measure what great looks like and metrics is just one of them. I couldn't agree more. And even piling onto that, the younger generation is always looking at new opportunities. And so how do you like keep them motivated to have a long career in one single place? Like a lot of that comes from the community that you build in the workplace. And if you're not very, very intentionally creating a space that people can gather in order to build that community like intentionally, and maybe there's different and better ways of doing it moving forward, I think you're just gonna see more turnover than before, especially in the sales organization. So the other thing that you said, you said, what happens when we're not doing well? That made me think of field reps. So when you said like, what happens when we're not doing well? So right now everyone's like, look, we're selling deals. Like the enterprise reps are closing deals over the phone. We don't need to be there in person. When you said that, what it made me think of is what happens when Unity loses a deal because the enterprise rep is not in front of the customer and the person that you lost to, their rep is there having lunch, having dinner, that is where I'm like, oh, everything's going to snap back. I think about, I spent a lot of time in Europe, half my team's over there. And I keep thinking, okay, so if our customers' offices aren't open, how am I going to meet customers when I go over there? And I'm like, oh my God, the restaurants and coffee shops for a while, I think those are going to be the place where business happens, which will be great. But I cannot, and I think everybody's bursting at the seams to go out and see customers. I think what people are, are dreading is that day-to-day -day commute back to work. It's not going out in the field. Unity is an extremely global company. We love to travel. All of us are looking forward to getting back to that. 
And I think this time too has made me redefine. I'm hearing a lot of talk about like, is field sales dead? No, it is not dead. I absolutely do not believe that. I still, in my heart of hearts, think people buy from people and you've got to get to know people. And yeah, Zoom can help us in the interim, but the most effective way is to go spend some genuine time with people. That's why we all got into this business, I think a lot of us. So I don't think it's dead. I think the thing that I've learned over the pandemic though, as we've been working on through Zoom, is that the difference between field and inside sales, it's not just about, I get in my car and go see a customer, it's about the complexity of the deal. So I think maybe there's a redefinition that might happen And we might look again more to that description of strategic sales versus field sales when we think about how to label these teams. Yeah, I think you're dead on. Like the nomenclature is already leading you to like create this, okay, one person's inside literally and one person's in the field. And so if you use that as the descriptor for the core function of the job, then that's how people are going to think of the role. But it's not that. Field sales, to your point, just means that there's a lot more stakeholders. It's a lot longer of a sales cycle. There's a lot more things that lends itself well to doing things in person and building relationships and multi-threading and doing all these things. So I agree with you. I couldn't agree more. Probably around this time last year, maybe like June, July, you were saying that you told the team, hey, get out of your house and go bring lunch to your customer. Like just go do something nice. You don't even have to hang out with them. If you do hang out with them in the backyard, just do something. And it's good for you and it's good for the customer. Are you still doing that? Are you still pushing the team to do that? Whatever comfort level everyone has, right? We have to work within these confines of the comfort levels. I encourage my team to do something outside their office, right? Ideally, if you can go convince a customer to come and have a coffee with you, great. I know there are a lot of people that feel a little bit odd about asking that because they feel like the customer will feel bad if they say no. Just even having a casual conversation versus a very structured one with a customer, I think can be really helpful. I spent some time with one of our customers the other day and we had, I have no agenda for this call other than get to get to know you. And it was a female in the industry. So we had that connection. It was the best hour of my day. I'm trying myself to have a goal of having a lunch with somebody outside once a week A lot of times for me, these are people that work inside the organization. So I'm doing some skip levels over lunches. If they're in the area, I will drive and start doing phone calls in the car again, which makes me feel very free. I'm encouraging people to do whatever it is that helps to keep their spirits up and lift the spirits of their customer even just a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I think showing up makes a big difference. I remember years ago before COVID, we closed the customer. It was Ellie Mae who does like 40% of all mortgage in the US or whatever. And we were a startup and they were really unhappy. Something happened, we had an outage, whatever. They were very, very unhappy. Just closed like six, 700K deal. I didn't even close it. Somebody else did. And long story short, my boss just said, Jubin, can you just go to their office? Just show up. And I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, absolutely nothing, just show up. And I said, great. So you just want me to show up with my tail between my legs and get my ass handed to me by these guys. And he said, yep bring some lunch. And I was like, okay, I was 23. So I said, okay. So I showed up and every week I showed up with Mediterranean food right around their office. They love Mediterranean food. And I would bring it to him. First, it started with the VP, Justin, if if you're listening. And then it grew. He continued to invite more people from his team. Then next thing you know, by like month two of this, I had the entire security organization there 
And they would all, it would just be an airing of grievances. And we got it back on the rails. I used to bring my VP of product with me over time because it was the best customer feedback we could have gotten. And now Justin is like a, a dear friend of mine. And we just built a relationship over time just because I showed up. And I think they really appreciated the fact that I really had nothing. I, I showed up and I just said, I got nothing for you. Like every week I'd say, we haven't done much. No new updates. I got you extra pita this time. So anyway, I just think there's a, a lot to be said for showing up. One of our first big government deals we did at Google, this was back in the early days and it's public knowledge. So I think I can share the name of the account, but this company was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And we decided, you know what? They're interested. We've qualified them. I'm going to go see Rockwell Collins in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Why not? And you don't get on one plane to go to Cedar Rapids. You get on at least two to go to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And we went out there and I'll never forget. And these people are still my friends. I will use the word friends. And we'd go out there and they would drop everything and entertain us for the whole day because we took the time to get on the plane and go out. And we did a phenomenal deal with them. And it was, it was because we showed up. Absolutely agree with you, Jimin. One more story. Sorry. This is when I was a rep too. I was working for this really technical company. They were based in Portland, Oregon. And I was trying to get into the CIO of the big energy company up there. I couldn't get a meeting. I couldn't get a meeting. So I was like, you know what? It's almost Thanksgiving. So I went and I found the best bakery in Portland and I ordered five pumpkin pies. And I just decided I'm going to show up at this company and I'm going to bring these pumpkin pies and okay, see what happens. So I did. And I was like, well, this last one is for John. And they're like, okay, hold on. And next thing you know, I was sitting in John's office with this pumpkin pie. So I got my meeting with the CIO and things went great from there. So like a little creativity goes a long way. You got to show up. I have so many of these stories, by the way. Like, I think we could probably just spend a whole podcast episode talking about the value of showing up. And showing up is one thing. I think going the extra mile is like just so important. And I think showing up is an easy way to go the extra mile. I remember we closed a deal with a guy and I sat down with him. We had wine in Virginia, which is where he was living. And he talked about a skateboard in passing after a bottle of wine that he loved when he was a kid. And I wrote it down when I went to the bathroom and then I went back and I sent him this skateboard and I found it and I sent it to him. And he was a customer of Jubin's, I think for life, because he just understood that like, you know what? He listened and he cares and he showed up and he went the extra mile. And I think it just makes such a, a difference. And I think showing up physically is an easy way to go that extra mile. So before we run out of time, I want to talk to you about leadership. The reason I do is because every time I hear you talk, the conversation almost always reverts for you back to how much you love leading. You can hear it in your voice. Like you can hear it as you go through your background. I'll start with what does leadership give to you and what deep inside does it give back to Laura to have the pain tolerance that you need in order to be in leadership? I get great satisfaction out of seeing people grow. I remember when I first went in, people were like, are you sure you want to go into leadership? I mean, being a, a rep, you're making all this money. And there was something that kind of flipped in me where I was like, I feel like now I have something to teach. And so I get satisfaction from being able to help people grow, whether it's working through a problem or working through a deal or just having a, a career conversation with people. I really like giving back. 
it was ingrained in me as a child. My family does a lot to give back to our community. My, my parents and my grandparents, like I saw that along the way. And I think that's definitely a piece of it for me. I get personally a lot of energy from the scale of the business and from getting feedback that I hope I'm the kind of leader people want to work for. So I think that feeds me too. I get a lot of positive feedback from it. So selfishly, absolutely, that that drives me. And, and I think too, Jubin, it's because I've chosen to do it in a way that's like uniquely me. I'm just me. I'm authentic. I'm not going to pretend to be anybody else. And if it works, it works. And I was always like, if it doesn't work, then I'll go do something else. That's a great answer. I've heard you talk about leadership in the context of women. And you gave a really cool answer that I wanted to bring up to you, which was that you think it's important as a woman to be a leader and to be an ambitious leader for upward mobility, bringing it back to our previous conversation, because the only way to bring others up is by you first going and taking a broader leadership role. I just thought that was a really cool answer. It's super genuine. I will tell you, I've never worked for a female in my career with one exception. Her name was Jan Ryan, if she's listening. She's out of Austin, Texas. It was when Evolve was actually, we went public at Evolve. The dot-com bust happened. We were purchased by a private equity fund and they put a leadership team into place. I had been out on maternity leave, came back and Jan was there. And I met with her like two times. They think she moved on to a different role. They'd kind of come in and be there for just a short period of time. And that woman, and I've, I've sent her notes on LinkedIn to say, I don't even know if you remember me, but like you made a huge impact on me. And I realized like I did not have any females with that one exception to reach out to. I've worked for some wonderful men, wonderful men that care so much about women. I'm working for one today. It's one of the reasons I went to work for him at Unity. But yeah, I do think we need to do that. And I think we need to bring others along with us. And so part of this is just, trying to prove that we can do it. And it's interesting. It's been an interesting journey. I have lots of stories along the way, but it's been interesting and I care a lot about it. For you, when you were a rep, you were the top rep, like life's good. You're young, you're making money, you have your own schedule, you're meeting customers. What was the first signal or set of signals that told you you wanted to go or you should go into leadership? Okay, so I've had some wonderful bosses. I've had some not so wonderful. And I remember one of the, I won't name any names, but there was one person I worked for. And I just thought, what does this person even do? If I ever become a manager, I will, I swear to God, I will not operate in this way. Right. It was just zero value add. And so I said, I will never be a leader until genuinely there is something that I feel like I can teach. So I go back to my time at Google I go back to getting my ass kicked for two years, not hitting my number, and then finally figuring out how to do it. And so then I had enough success where I was like, the way to grow this business is I've got to teach other people how to do this. It's the only way we're going to grow it. So it was that knowing now I had something to teach. And then the second piece of it was Google invested so heavily in their leaders. I was like, if you're going to do it, do it here. This is a great company to do it with. So it was those two things combined, feeling like I had something to teach and then being in an environment where I knew I'd be supported and invested in. And I was. Ah, that's a great place to leave it. Same questions I always ask in closing. The first, what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? 
the answer to me to grit, and this is from looking at it from a lens of my role, from being a young SDR all the way up, it's doing the 20% of the things that you don't want to do. I always say like, if you can get in a job where you love 80% of it, you are damn lucky. There's always 20% that you're not going to like, you do it anyway. It's your job. So it's doing that 20%, even when you don't want to do it, that is grit. And I think people glamorize grit, right? It's not fun necessarily when you're in it and when you're doing it. That's why it's called grit. So it's doing that last 20%. That's a great answer. If someone wants to get a hold of you, are you hiring? If so, what's the best way to get a hold of you? LinkedIn is great. That's an easy way to get a hold of me. You can email me, laurap at unity3d.com. We are hiring. I've got roles open in Austin. I've got roles open in the UK. Please reach out. We are hiring like crazy. Laura, thank you for your time. Thank you, Juven. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.